From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They fled Ukraine and ended up in Colorado Springs. But Marina and Alexander didn't pack expecting to be gone very long. They they just took all of their documents and um, some basic clothes. Today, their story of escape. But first, Congressman Jason Crow, who's just back from the region, his thoughts on supporting refugees. Later, remembering Gloria Tanner, Colorado's first black female state senator. And my attitude was that I can do it. I don't care what the obstacles are. Then Pixar's new movie, Turning Red. It was a creative adventure for visual effects supervisor Daniel Feinberg of Boulder. The anime references are kind of crazy. It was really cool because everybody was so excited to do kind of a new look. And Red Rock's regrets. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Russian forces have begun attacking Lviv in western Ukraine, another sign that Vladimir Putin has no plans to relent, and yet another reason Ukrainians are fleeing, more than four and a half million, according to the United Nations. For those who've reached the U.S., it's unclear how long they'll stay. In a few minutes, we'll meet a couple that has landed in Colorado Springs. First, though, Democratic Representative Jason Crow of Aurora has just returned from Poland, where he met with refugees. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. Representative, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. Good to be back with you. What stands out from your time in Poland? Well, Ryan, a couple of things. First off, uh, just the sheer brutality of this war. You've had, uh, in about a, a matter of seven weeks, uh, about 10 million Ukrainians who have been displaced from their homes. Uh, a little over half of those have actually left Ukraine. So that's about uh, 25% of the population of the country of Ukraine that's either internally displaced or has fled to Poland or surrounding countries in Europe. Uh, and uh, over half of the children of Ukraine have actually fled uh, and are, are actually displaced either in the country or outside of the country. So this is a terrible and brutal war. Uh, the second is the the troops. You know, I actually had the privilege of being able to visit my former unit, the 82nd Airborne Division. You know, I started my career in public service as a paratrooper uh, to see those young uh, paratroopers, those men and women uh, serving us overseas in, in Poland was a real honor and, and just a pleasure to, to visit with them, including a bunch of Coloradans. What is the nature of their work right now? Well, right now, this is a, a show of support uh, mission primarily. So we are bolstering the eastern flank of NATO. So those are the, the eastern countries that border Russia. Uh, we are surging troops into those areas to show Russia that we are uh, standing firm with NATO, but they're also providing other assistance uh, uh, with um, sending equipment and supplies uh, and also potentially health care support uh, for the refugees and, and folks in Poland as well. What does it look like in Poland with that sort of crush of humanity, given this humanitarian crisis? Well, I, I, I can't underscore how amazing the people of Poland have been. Here you have a country 
um, that uh, you know is, is a little bit less than the population of Ukraine uh, that has taken in a substantial amount of their own population. About five percent of the population of their country has increased as a result of what they've done, uh, opening up their doors. And you have the people of Poland uh, largely opening up their own homes, uh, bringing Ukrainian um, refugees, children in, uh, support, food kitchens, uh, feeding them, housing them, uh, and of course, uh, sending them weapons and equipment. I mean, the people of Poland have been unbelievable. And I also had the chance to visit Slovakia and Romania, also NATO countries who are doing much the same. I mean, the, the um, outpouring of support in Europe, in Eastern Europe in particular, has been uh, really unbelievable. Is the feeling on the ground there that the Russians might actually attack NATO territory? It is the feeling on the ground. You have um, people in Poland and uh, Romania and, and uh, in the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, they are really worried. Uh, they're worried about Vladimir Putin not being a stable man, uh, being isolated, uh, really having him, his back up against a wall here because he's, he's losing this war in many ways. Uh, they are afraid of what he will do because uh, he is desperate. Uh, he is a, a dictator. Uh, he is surrounded by uh, yes-men and, and autocrats and oligarchs. Uh, that's a very dangerous position for anyone to be in. And these are folks who know history. I mean, these are folks who have been invaded by Russia before. Uh, they, they have a long view of history. And they're worried about it. And that's also why you see countries like Finland and Sweden, who have for a very long time uh, deferred on NATO membership. They've maintained some neutrality, uh, have not joined NATO. Uh, they are now expected in the, in the next couple of weeks to make a decision to join NATO and to make the move to do that in June when the next NATO parliamentary assembly occurs in Spain. Uh, and, and they are expected to, after many years, make the decision to move towards NATO membership. I don't want to engage in fear-mongering or hyperbole, but this is a, a question that I'd like you to answer with your hat as a member of the House Armed Services Committee on. Does that mean that there are preparations underway for something like a nuclear conflict or uh, entrenched cyber warfare? What, uh, what are those discussions like on that committee? Well, uh, Ryan, I, mean, I sit on both of the primary national security committees in Congress. I sit on both the Armed Services Committee and the House Intelligence Committee. I'm one of the, the few members of Congress that sits on both of those. So I uh, certainly had an inside view in that. And I can say that, you know, you're right, that this is not a time for fear mongering. This is not a time for hyperbole and for um, people to to exaggerate on anything. But it's also a time to take things seriously when you have a, a man in, in Vladimir Putin who is isolated, uh, who is uh, potentially not well, uh, who has engaged in the largest land war and invasion unprovoked since World War II and is killing literally tens of thousands of innocent people uh, without provocation and cause. Uh, it's something to take seriously. So what we have to do is make sure that we are uh, taking the, the measures we have to take uh, being sober-minded, uh, assessing risk, uh, not um, overreacting, uh, but also being firm and strong, too, and not letting Russia set the terms of this engagement uh, and standing firm with our allies. So this is where leadership matters. This is where policy matters. And this is where uh, the fact that we have incredible uh, military leaders and intelligence leaders in collaboration with and reporting to our civilian leadership, which is unique to our system, uh, is really important. Is there anything you'd change about the U.S. approach militarily or politically? 
There isn't. I think the military has done an amazing job. Actually, we have done this exactly what we should do, surge additional troops into Europe. You know, we have about 80,000 American troops permanently stationed uh, throughout Euro Europe normally. Uh, we have surged that by about 25,000. So we have about 105,000 there now. Uh, we have formed what are called additional uh, battle groups under NATO. We've gone from four battle groups to eight. Uh, and have moved those into uh, Eastern European countries. Uh, we have uh, sent Patriot missile air defense systems uh, and also are doing tremendous humanitarian work to those refugees. And at the same time, the Biden administration has assembled the largest coalition since World War II, uh, a diplomatic coalition, uh, a coalition of intelligence agencies, a coalition that has put together uh, crushing sanctions. It really has been a remarkable diplomatic and, and political effort, and, and they've done a very fine job. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Congressman Jason Crow of Aurora, who is just back from Poland uh, and some other NATO countries as well, seeing the Ukrainian refugee crisis up close. You wrote a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in March asking him to speed up the process of accepting Ukrainian refugees into the U.S. Have you seen any movement? Yeah, the administration did respond to that. Uh, President Biden announced that they were, were going to take up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. Uh, and it's, it's too early to tell whether that number is too low or too high or just about right. Uh, but uh, this refugee crisis is a little bit different from other refugee crises in that Ukrainians overwhelmingly are planning to return back to Ukraine at the end of this war. But over 90 percent say that they are, are planning to return and to help rebuild their country. I mean, these are very patriotic people. Uh, they're people who love their, their country. We see that in the way they're fiercely resisting and fighting. Uh, but these refugees want to return. Uh, so you are in a situation of kind of temporary housing in many cases. And what we see right now is that many of those Ukrainians are, are staying close to Ukraine. That's why uh, they're going to countries like Romania and the Baltics and, and Poland, because they, they want to be close so they can return as quickly as they can. Uh, so, but there, we have seen some come to the United States that have friends and family here, uh, but not uh, certainly to the levels that uh, we have in the past. But all of that is based on the idea that they can return to Ukraine. And at this point, it seems like a big assumption. Should the United States be prepared to roll out a welcome mat that may last years or decades? I think so. I mean, it, it does remain to be seen how many can return to Ukraine. I mean, uh, the Ukrainians have uh, resisted uh, and held back the Russian invasion. Uh, the, the Russians have pulled out their troops in the north, uh, in the northeast, and are, are rearraying those troops in the south and the east and trying to consolidate their invasion. Uh, but, you know, as it stands right now, the Ukrainians remain in control of about 80 percent of Ukrainian uh, territory. Hmm. Uh, so whether that changes over time, you know, we're going to we're going to have to see. Uh, nobody really knows. Uh, but if, if there is a situation where there are more, yes, the United States should open up their welcome mats because that's what we do. We are a nation of immigrants and refugees. In about the minute we have left, Congressman, you served in Afghanistan. You've been outspoken when it comes to helping Afghan refugees, especially those who were of service to the United States and allied forces. Does the humanitarian crisis unfolding in and around Ukraine complicate the Afghan crisis? No, it does not. I mean, it, it, this is not a binary choice, this or that. Uh, we, we, again, are a country of immigrants and refugees. We're a state of immigrants and refugees. I represent a district of immigrants and refugees. 20% of the people that I represent in the 6th Congressional District of Colorado, almost 20%, were 
we're born outside of the country. And what we know in our community is that that makes us stronger. It makes us more vibrant. It makes us a better community. Uh, we know that deeply in Colorado. Uh, and in Colorado in particular, we'll be willing to accept uh, immigrants and refugees because that's who we are. That's what we do. Do you have some sense of what that number might be from Ukraine, by the way, in Colorado? I, I don't. Okay. We don't have a sense for what it might be overall nationally. It's just too early to tell. I mean, we brought in uh, somewhere around 1,500 to, to 2,000 Afghan refugees during the Afghan crisis, uh, which was um, you know, more than our fair share because we're such a welcoming place and we actually do it really well. We do it better than most states uh, and, and people know that. Uh, but it's way too early to tell what it's going to look like for Ukraine yet. Thank you so much for your time, Congressman. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Always uh, enjoyed talking with you. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Aurora, who's just returned from Eastern Europe. Okay, now the story of a Ukrainian couple that has landed in Colorado Springs and whose future is rife with uncertainty. CPR's Matt Bloom has this profile. I met Marina and Oleksandr virtually over Zoom, so their granddaughter Lydia Miller could interpret. The retired couple sat in their new bedroom shoulder to shoulder as Oleksandr recounted their escape from war in Kiev in late February. He asked us not to use his last name out of concern for their safety. On the 24th, around 5 a.m., he and his wife Marina, along with their daughter and granddaughter, woke up from the bombings going off in front of their house, in front of their apartment building. They didn't think it was going to be war. They just thought it was like a random explosion. Something went off in a storage unit or something like that. They didn't know it was a bomb. They soon found out the Russian invasion had begun. They immediately decided to evacuate with their daughter and another granddaughter to try to reach family in Colorado Springs. They didn't, when they were leaving, they didn't think it was going to be forever. They, they just took all of their documents and um, some basic clothes. They spent about a day driving to the border with Slovakia, only stopping for gas once. Alexander says they kept getting delayed because they kept hitting police blockades on the highway. So whenever they would think there was a road there, there was a military, like a police blockade with like, um, saying that you cannot go there. It's, it, it exploded. You have to go a different way. When they finally reached the border with Slovakia, they hit another roadblock. The, the wait time was 18 hours um, to get across the borders. Marina and Oleksandr parked their car on the side of the road and walked to join a line where thousands of other Ukrainians were waiting to cross. Thankfully, their wait was much shorter than they thought it would be, only a couple hours, and they were able to safely cross into Slovakia. From there, the group caught a train to Prague, and then a series of flights landed them in Denver, where family picked them up. The daughter and grandchild they fled with stayed behind in France. When they got to Denver, it kind of hit. They just didn't believe that Russia would actually invade Ukraine because we're, uh, they're all, we all speak the same language. Alexander and Marina are two of a growing number of Ukrainians who've reached Colorado since the start of the war. It's impossible to know exactly how many are still trying to reach family here, but it's likely thousands, says Irina Shatlov. She's an organizer with Ukrainians in Colorado, a local advocacy group that started when the war began. And a lot of people stuck in Europe. They cannot get even visa to, to get here, to, mm. to visit their families, at least. 
Shatlov and other community members have been meeting with members of Congress to try loosening rules around admitting Ukrainian refugees to the U.S. They've also called attention to a new problem for Ukrainians who've already arrived on tourist visas, like Marina and Oleksandr. I mean, it's a problem, for example, rent a house or rent mm-hmm. an apartment. Mm-hmm. Because you ha- you you have to have social security number, you have to have account number, uh, some history, you know, etc. So we 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 have to save them in any way, but uh, it's becoming new problems for them for those families. The main solution for many is to get granted asylum, a special immigration status that could help unlock financial aid and other benefits the federal government has to offer. Here's Senator John Hickenlooper. I mean, over 100 people uh, have kind of gone through the process of us trying to help them get a, a visa, file for asylum if they're already here. Full disclosure, Lydia is an intern in Hickenlooper's D.C. office. His staff in Colorado realized this while I was on the phone with them, trying to confirm that they'd helped expedite Marina and Oleksandr's asylum case. They confirmed the applications were among those moving forward, but the process is still likely to take several months because there's a big backlog. Hickenlooper says in the short term, local nonprofits and grassroots efforts are stepping in to help. When you look around the country, Colorado is considered one of the top states in America for dealing efficiently and effectively with issues around, you know, uh, people from war-torn areas, you know, uh, refugees from Afghanistan, for, for example. The state has welcomed thousands of Afghan refugees with housing, food, and financial support since the U.S. withdrawal last August. Marina and Alexander and their family hope to find similar help as they wait to hear back about their asylum claim, which they filed last month. Here's their granddaughter, Lydia, again. Well, we've been reaching out to a lot of nonprofit organizations, seeing if there's any way that they can help. But they're saying that as long as they don't have an um, yes, granted asylum, they can't help. So which is very unfortunate. As our conversation winds down, Marina starts to speak for the first time. She says her main concern is her health. Uh, my grandparents are saying they want to know if there's a way for refugees that are coming here to get some sort of screening or some basic medicine as they wait their citizen status because how are they supposed to um, get better after, as like they said, they traveled for four days and they don't have any status here to be applying for medical care. So just asking them about how can they get medical help. Finding housing and learning English are next on her list. Lydia has taken them hiking to help them deal with some of the stress, and a few neighbors have even brought clothing donations over to contribute. She says those types of things are more in their control. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. When we come back, a trailblazer and mentor who will live on through her many mentees. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Douglas County School District has seen months of turmoil. It started with mask mandates and anti-mask mandates, then a new school board and the ousting of the district superintendent, Corey Wise. In the latest development, Wise has filed a discrimination and retaliation complaint against the school district and four of its board members. CPR News has been closely following this story and other education-related news in Colorado. Get the latest and see a timeline of events in Douglas County at CPR.org. The first black female state senator in Colorado, Gloria Tanner, died this month at age 86. 
She's remembered as a mentor and a trailblazer. Governor Jared Polis said Tanner's undying love for her community is manifest in her mission to help shape emerging leaders. Tanner was inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame in 2002. She spoke at the time about overcoming obstacles. And it depends on how you look at them and how you face them, because if you keep thinking that things are there because I'm a woman and I'm black and I'm this and I'm that, I don't think you'll ever do it. You have to take a positive. And my attitude was that I can do it. I don't care what the obstacles are uh, because my limitations are mine, not yours, you know. And if you want to place them, I'm going to overcome them. So I never really, you know, thought... But if I had thought about that, I'd be sad every day because there's so much discrimination against, still against women and minorities. All the things that I've accomplished that I've wanted to accomplish, I set goals and I've been able to accomplish all of them. I don't believe that obstacles should remain obstacles. I think of them as a challenge that turn them into challenges that this is what I want to accomplish and I want to do it by this time. By the time I was 40, I wanted to have my master's and I did. So I kind of set goals and worked on those goals. Gloria Tanner spent 17 years in public service. During her induction ceremony, she reflected on some of her accomplishments as a state lawmaker. I was always called a person with a nonprofit mentality, and I think they were right, I do, because most of the things that I wanted to do did not involve money or making a lot of money. It was just to see some results in the community, things that I could help out with. And I was able to start the Colorado Black Women for Political Action. In that organization, we got more black women on boards and commissions than we ever had before. I just think that you need women at the table when you make public policy, because if you don't have them there, there are certain things that will never happen. And in order to make good public policy, I think you need the input of everybody, and you just can't just have an all-white male you know, sitting there doing that. The parental responsibility was important to me, but the marital discrimination, I decided to do that bill because there were several in the Denver Post didn't allow you to be married and work in the same department. I carried the bill, and we were successful with it, and we were real proud of that. I guess one of the others that I'm really proud of is the abandoned baby bill. That was my bill, too, and uh, we've had saved, what, maybe close to 20 lives now. So tell me more about that. Well, that was a bill that if you would take the baby within 72 hours to the fire department or to emergency clinic or something, you didn't have to give any information, just walk away and leave the baby there. That was a good bill, I thought, and really made a big difference. I also carried the prostate cancer bill because men, you know, we don't want to be widows. I was a widow when I was in my 40s, and I don't want to see that happen. And believe it or not, it was mostly the men that went to the mic to fight it. We don't need to make any demands on insurances. You know, we got enough, blah, blah. That got through, though, but after three times, he had to carry it for three years. Above all, Gloria Tanner said she relished being involved, even while in retirement. I just saw the need, and I think the need is still there, and and, and I thought I could help. I like to be involved, and this is something... What I'm doing now, I thoroughly enjoy working with Rutgers and working here with the leadership institutes. The main thing of these institutes and things, there's somebody after me, you know, that you keep on running and and you don't stop. And I think if that happens, 
I will feel that everything I tried and put so many hours in and made what I want made it what I wanted it to be and it would help society and families and everybody else. So I'm real pleased about that. Gloria Tanner, who died this month in her Denver home at age 86. Our thanks to the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame for that audio. When we come back, overcoming adversity on the way to basketball's biggest stage. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team, with job openings now for a news director, a graphic designer, and a technical operations specialist. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. The Denver Nuggets take on the Golden State Warriors tonight in Game 2 of their first-round NBA playoff series. And while Nuggets player Nikola Jokic has carried the team all season, rookie Bones Highland has become a fan favorite. CPR's Vic Vela reports on the adversity Highland overcame on his way to basketball's biggest stage. Lawrence Hines is a lieutenant with the fire department in Wilmington, Delaware. And if you don't know where that is, you're not alone. You still get the people that are like, Delaware? And I'm like, the place your president's from. They're like, yeah, where is that at? Of course, Wilmington's most famous resident is President Joe Biden. But there are other well-known people from Wilmington, like jazz great Clifford Brown. But nowadays, if you ask Lieutenant Hines who's the most famous person from Wilmington, he would say it's a guy named Bones who plays for the Denver Nuggets. If you ask anybody from Wilmington, just Wilmington, probably Bones. Now, once you get outside of Wilmington the rest of the state, Biden, but... I mean, he's still growing in popularity, so you got to watch that. Back cut for Bones. Oh, been around everyone. And he's shaking, folks. Oh, Bones are shaking and rattling. Long three-pointer. Bang! Bones Highland from downtown. He's one of those kids that would take shots from distances where you, in your mind, you'd scream no as he would let it fly, but then it would go in and you would just shake your head and go, okay, he's special. Nashawn Bones Highland has been a rookie sensation for the Nuggets, stepping up big time for a team that lost two of its biggest stars to injuries. And it all started in July of last year, when the Nuggets had the 26th pick in the NBA draft. The Denver Nuggets select Bones Highland Mm. from Virginia Commonwealth University. I remember it like yesterday. You could see his agent was on the phone. Looks like he had got the call. And a hush went over the whole room. That's John Shelton. He was Highland's fifth grade teacher and basketball coach at Thomas Edison Charter School in Wilmington. He was with Bones and his family on draft night. The joy, the raw emotion from his mom, from him, the tears, all the heartache making it out of Wilmington. Like a movie, I'm telling you. There could be a great movie made from this story right now. (laughs) So what's the big deal about Bones Highland? I mean, why is he so popular in his hometown? And why is his story like a movie. Well, to better appreciate Highland's Cinderella story, you need to know where he came from and the adversity he's faced. You know, Newsweek magazine did a story a couple years ago 
on the cover. They called Wilmington Murder Town, USA. That's Salome Thomas L., the principal at Thomas Edison. We've literally had people, you know, get shot and killed right outside the school building. Unfortunately, that's a normal thing. That's a part of the environment, you know what I mean, that he had to grow up in. Growing up with a single mom in a tough neighborhood, Bones navigated a challenging environment by focusing on basketball. And by the time he reached high school, his play was getting a lot of attention from college scouts. Then tragedy struck on March 25th of 2018. His family home caught fire. Bones saved his own life by jumping out of his second-story bedroom window. But in doing so, he injured his knee badly. Doctors told him he would never play basketball again. After the fire, his grandma and 11-month-old baby cousin were hospitalized, but they died soon after. Lieutenant Hines investigated the fire. It was very devastating. You had the loss of two people, and then this kid who we all knew had a promising career, who you were worried about not only physically, but mentally. That's a lot to overcome. But Bones refused to give up. He put in long hours late at night at his old middle school gym, rehabbing his knee. And by God, he somehow proved the doctors wrong. Salome Thomasell. When they told him he might not play again, he came back and scored 50 points in three straight high school games after the injury. This young man, tell him he can't and he will. If the Bones Highland story is made into a movie, the big finale would have to be a Nuggets game against the 76ers from last month in Philadelphia, less than an hour drive from Highland's hometown in Wilmington. Here comes Highland. Highland thinking about it. Fires away. It's good. Bones Highland long distance. Timeout Philadelphia. A Bones barrage from downtown, and it's 103.97. Several hundred friends, family members, and firefighters who helped Bones recover after the tragedy drove to Philly to watch their hometown hero play. And Bones lit it up. Leans in, back up Highland. Highland, three-pointer, puts it up, puts it in. Bones Highland does it again. And the Nuggets go back up by two. And you know what I was most proud of? Shelton and I, we've been telling our friends for a long time about Bones. You know, it's like nobody really believed us. That night, they were texting us like crazy at the game, like, yo, your boy Bones is lighting it up. You know, they, they hurt me. Tell them to take it easy on my sixes, you know. And that'll do it. First, Jokic played big, but Bones Highland with a magnificent fourth quarter. Highland scored most of his 21 points in the fourth quarter. He led the Nuggets to victory with his big three-point shots in the clutch. After the game, a reporter asked Bones about his relationship with the Wilmington Fire Department, and he broke down in tears. After collecting himself, Bones opened up. Every tattoo on my body is something that, you know, I play for and, and what I stand for. On my left shoulder, I got my baby brother and my grandma, and uh, that's what I play for. You know, every time I'm checking in the game, you know, I, I, I do the cross across my chest just to... You know, be thankful that I'm still in this position and uh, just to play basketball because basketball, you know, doctors told me, you know, four years ago, I never played basketball. That's something I just play for each and every day. Just kind of go out there, play with joy and, uh, you know, that swag and just to go out there, just be me at all times. John Shelton says the hallways at Thomas Edison Charter School in Wilmington are filled with Young Bones fans. It's a sense of pride. It's like one of our students made it. I had a kid come the other day. My bone shirt just came in the mail. Can I wear it to school? We had to wear uniforms to school. Like, all right, well, maybe on the dress down day. But, uh, you know, it's just great to see. 
And as the Nuggets get ready to face the Golden State Warriors in the NBA playoffs, the question is, are the Warriors ready for Bones Highland? I don't think so, but they better get ready. (laughs) They better get ready like Freddy, because Bones is coming. This song by Wilmington jazz great Clifford Brown is called Joy Spring. And as the Nuggets embark on their playoff journey, fans hope Bones can make this a truly joyful spring to remember. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. When we come back, a Colorado connection to the new Pixar movie, Turning Red. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Of all of Colorado's beautiful places, a scene photographed more than most is the Maroon Bells, the pair of purple and white striped 14ers near Aspen. To see them at sunrise, reflected perfectly in Maroon Lake below, is simply stunning. The peaks get their unique color and streaked appearance from mudstone, which can be crumbly and fragile and dangerous to climb. There's a U.S. Forest Service sign at an access trail. It warns, quote, the rock is downsloping, rotten, loose, and unstable. It kills without warning. It goes on to say, expert climbers who did not know the proper routes have died here. Don't repeat their mistakes, for only rarely have these mountains given a second chance. Words to consider before you climb the Maroon Bells, also known as the Deadly Bells. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Think back to middle school. I'll admit that when I do that, it feels a bit overwhelming. And in the new Pixar film Turning Red, a middle schooler named May turns into a giant red panda when the going gets rough. May? Are you a werewolf? No! What? He's a red panda! Sick. You're so fluffy! You're so fluffy! I've always wanted a tail. Priya, Abby, quit it! May, what the heck happened? It's just some, you know, inconvenient, uh, genetic thingy I got from my mom. I mean, it'll go away. Eventually. Maybe. The visual effects supervisor on Turning Red is Danielle Feinberg, who grew up in Boulder. She spoke with my colleague Carla Jimenez. What does a visual effects supervisor do? I'm still trying to find a good answer for this because it's kind of a little <laughs> bit of everything in, in ways. It's um, Typically, it's been a pretty technical role of overseeing the technical on the whole film, um, typically at Pixar. On this film, I definitely coming from uh, many, many years directing lighting for our films, I was coming at it from both a creative and technical point of view, which is probably more similar to what happens in live action. And so in some ways, I was a little bit kind of the glue holding um, the different groups together and making sure they were kind of talking and collaborating. In another way, I I was thinking about it as like almost like the oil greasing the wheels to make sure things were happening. But, you know, on some level, it's if a department is trying to do something great in the film, Like part of my job is to make sure that they can actually do it using the tools that we have. But on this film, we got to do a new look. So it was also about helping make sure that people could do all these really cool creative things, too. Your career at Pixar started with Bugs Life and your credits include many beloved movies like Coco, WALL-E, The Incredibles. Were there any lessons you learned from those previous Pixar films that you brought to this one? 
For sure. I think especially on the early films I worked on, um, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, we were still kind of even figuring out how to make movies and how to um, bring certain things to the screen. Like for Monsters, Inc., we hadn't done a character that, a main character that had hair. We didn't really know how to do that. So there was a whole R&D thing. And then for Finding Nemo, we had to figure out how to do underwater. And so there was all kinds of sort of um, creative and technical hurdles at that time, but also just how do you make a movie um, is its whole own challenge. And so with each one of those movies, we would hit different challenges on all fronts. And those were all kind of the lessons I took with me as I kept going. And, and they, they did span the kind of creative technical and the how to get a movie done sort of, you know, with our movies, we pick on release date and you don't get to change it. So there isn't any like, well, we didn't quite get it done next week. We'll get it done next, the week after. And so the, the movie making pressure and schedule is, is real. I understand that you actually observed some red pandas for this movie. How long did you get to spend doing that? Did you get to hang out with one? We, we were, the time I went, it was a couple of hours and we got to go back with the woman at the zoo who oversees the red pandas and, and a few other animals, but she was just like this really cool fountain of knowledge about everything red panda. And we got to go kind of back there and watch her like interact with the pandas and they're, they're kind of shy. And so it was really, it was her, they were used to her cause she goes in there every day, multiple times a day. And she had convinced one of them to do some tricks over time. And so we got to see that it was really cool. And you kind of made you think, man, I, I want to be in work. Did you get to, did you get to like hold it or where is it? No, we definitely, I think cause they're that shy. It was definitely like, you can stand on this side of the glass and I'm going to stand on this side of the oh. glass in the, in the, con- containment area with the the animal but it it was still really cool they're really interesting animals they are they really are um and you know i was really struck by some of the smaller details in the movie like whenever may is shocked in her panda form she raises her arms right and i didn't learn until after i watched the movie that red pandas do that in real life when they're when they feel like they're in danger because it's supposed to make them look bigger uh so what are some of the other details that were added um, let's see there. I mean, it, we live in this funny world cause we're making up these characters in these worlds. And so there's always this, we, we love to do research and make sure we get things right. But there's a point at which you deviate from those cause you're telling a story and creating a world. And so, um, those are some of the fun details where you're researching and you're like, oh, I'm going to put in the hands going up in the air. Um, you know, but we definitely wanted it to be recognizable as, um, coming from a red panda. It's way bigger than an actual red panda, but right. Some of the kind of coloring, we it had veered off and we kind of pulled it back to make sure it was closer to a red panda. Um, she's obviously way bigger, but at a certain point we were going for cute and she got kind of rounded and, and Domi said, no, no, they're so tubular. They're these very like tubular animals. So we then kind of went and did a pass back to make sure she was sort of tubular and um, spent a lot of time kind of getting the hair to look right and various things. And so I think a lot of it, though, was really in the design of the character was probably where we were we were kind of pulling back to the red panda as much as we could. This this film also, in a lot of ways, felt like a love letter to middle school and uh, (laughs) middle school nerd culture in the early 2000s. And it draws a lot of design influences from anime. Uh, How did that affect your role in this movie? Yeah, the anime references are kind of crazy because you think about anime, it's super 2D, graphic, um, you know, these these sort of pastel washes, the, some no de- like backgrounds with no detail, all these things. 
and and sort of figuring out how to marry that with our world where like over time as we've had more and more capabilities with the computer we add more and more complexity and that's how it looks sort of rich and luscious and so how do you those seem almost like opposing things and so it was really cool because everybody was so excited to do kind of a new look and so each department kind of go down the line they each looked at anime and pulled a different thing from it and some of the other references it wasn't just anime but that was a huge one uh and so a lot of it i would say was some of the a lot of the creative of trying to figure out how to wrap that in but for here's a here's kind of a fun little example is our special effects team decided to take hand-drawn elements and wrap it into their special effects their special effects are usually super kind of physics simulation based so really based on real world from the get-go and then how do you layer these 2d hand-drawn things in but there was this little piece of technology that we developed that took those hand-drawn things brought them into the software, generated almost like a, a kind of a physical model in the computer that then the lighters could take it and use that to generate light from. So all of a sudden these really like loose hand-drawn effects could generate light that helped kind of tie them all together into this whole world. And so there were little bits along the way, little pieces of technology and little creative things. And so even, even in the dirt textures that we would use on objects, instead of your kind of normal real world dirt, that's just kind of a mess we use much more kind of graphic bubbly shapes. And so it, it stayed in that kind of two-dimensional um, inspired uh, addition to this 3D complex computer world that we normally live in. So th this is the first Pixar movie in which all of the leadership roles are filled by women. Was that important to tell the story of a young girl's journey into puberty? I think it certainly added sort of an extra layer to things. I think we still could have told a fantastic story, but I do think having us all sort of there and in the room and, and um, you know, at any one time, probably one of us was in the room of anything going on over Zoom most of the time. But, um, you know, we're all kind of, we're bringing our own experience to things and making sure that it, it sort of um, felt true and like something that would resonate um, with the whole world kind of, or, you know, and not just because this is such a personal story for Domi that making sure it's not only sort of resonated with her and, but it, that it kind of resonated for, for girls around the world who have gone through middle school and all of this. Were there moments in, in May's journey that resonated with you? Um, yeah, certainly all the, like the crazy emotion and feeling like, you know, just don't even know what to do with it. Like, I think I probably would have been like a healthier teenager if I could have gone to a red panda, you know, where you had like this outlet of like, ah, um, and I think just the the sort of conflict of figuring out kind of who you are and how much of that is kind of what you other people expect of you and how much of that is really what you is what is driving you and who you really are. I mean, I think that's that's pretty universal for teenagers around, or at least in this country. I don't know. It's a it's a crazy time. Yeah, I hear that. You are also the first woman at Pixar to be the visual effects supervisor. I always want to know, for for people who are firsts, did you ever feel like there was a moment where you weren't re were ready for the role, or is there a sense of imposter syndrome for you? I think that um, I probably dealt with imposter syndrome more when I got promoted to be a director of photography for lighting and directing the lighting. I think probably because I'm a little older and... Well, who knows what, but I, it, it would crop up every now and again. And I just sort of had a better, like, eh, just go away. Kind of that voice, just go away. I don't, you're not necessary. And, 
that's just a sign to me that I've, I'm feeling like I don't know enough about whatever topic just came up in this meeting. But I think otherwise, I had been kind of at a high level on enough movies that I understood what the role was and uh, sort of, I think, also understood what I could bring to it that I felt like would have helped me on previous films. I love that. I love that you used those those moments as oh this as a signal for you that there's something that you need to learn because so often you know we use those imposter syndrome moments as an existential or in my case like an existential crisis and no it's 100%. like oh we can, I can use this to help myself that yeah I love yeah that. yeah. In the documentary about the making of this film, you mentioned that you really related to what May's going through, um, but. It, I, I wonder, because you became a mother during the course of the making of this movie. Do you now see yourself in Ming's journey? You know, the thing is, my kids are like two, a little over two now. And I feel like I haven't slept in a couple of years. And so I'm not sure I really have a great sense of anything. Like, I can't, I, it is hard for me to project out to like when they're 13. And I think probably because it also terrifies me it's hard enough to deal with the sort of two-year-old, you know, and so dealing with teenage problems feels really hard. I do know that I will never, ever go to my kid's middle school and hide behind a tree or <laughs> yell pads um, or any of the things that Ming did. I can say that with like absolute certainty. I'm sure I'll find other ways to embarrass my poor kids, but um, but they will certainly always know that they're very loved. That's very sweet. I also wonder, is there like a, a an urge... Of, of protectiveness, you know, because Ming is yeah. very protective of May. Is there an yeah, urge there for you? I think that from the very beginning is, is kind of the, one of the things as a parent that I have um, struggled with is how much do you protect them and how much do you let them go out and make their own mistakes? And I'm sure that will only continue more as they get older. Right now it's whether, you know, they're doing something they're going to fall off of something and, and you, you sort of go, you're good. Okay. You're in danger. Stop doing that. Um, you know, they're never in that much danger, but, um, <laughs> so I think that's something that will probably be universal for many years to come for me anyway. Mm -hmm. This movie has been overall critically acclaimed, but there were some reviews that criticized it for not being relatable enough to a wider audience and that it's too niche to Asians. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, here's the thing is that uh, we make movies about stuff that we love. It's it's very personal story to Domi. Um, I think it's the funniest movie I've ever worked on. Like, you know, and we can't control how audiences respond to that. But I will say that um, when it released, I got a text from my cousin and um, she's a white Jewish lady living in Boston and her 14 year old teenage boy watched the movie and was transfixed and could not get enough of it. And she said it was most amazing thing because he is on the spectrum and has a really hard time dealing with his feelings. And this totally helped him. And so like, you know, we, that's amazing. And I think that we try to tell um, stories that have um, things in them that are relatable to anyone in the world. And so, you know, sometimes people may watch it and it doesn't, it doesn't land for them, but it lands for others. And, and I think that's, that's the best we can do. Something else that really struck me about this movie is the portrayal of female friendships, especially among uh, preteens. They're very important, uh, speaking as a former preteen. How important was that for your team to get it right? 
De- really important because I think that's one of the key pieces of the movie is you know sort of if May doesn't have that tight group that she realizes how important they are to her um, and how much of a support system they are then I don't think the movie really works and it, it, like if you don't believe in it and um, you know it's very similar to what we were all going through in the movie like we're making this movie during the pandemic and it's we're all thrown together trying to do this over Zoom and meanwhile it feels like the world is melting down around us and so um, in a very sort of parallel way, the, those friendships during the making of this film with the women, the all-female leadership group, with all the supervisors of the departments, with all the people working on the film, those relationships became the thing that were sort of sustaining us through this madness. So it wasn't hard to, to, to kind of reach to experience for, for what friendship really means. But I, I think it's, I don't know, it's one of the pieces I love so much about the film is just how important your friends are, because all growing up, that was that was a huge part of my life, too. Thank you so much, Danielle. This was so lovely to talk to you. It's such a pleasure. And shout out to my Colorado peeps. I miss being in Colorado. Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez speaking with Danielle Feinberg, who grew up in Boulder. Feinberg is the visual effects supervisor for the new Pixar movie Turning Red. Finally today, your Red Rocks regrets. On Twitter, I asked what concerts people wish they'd gone to but missed. And this week, we're sharing some of your responses. It seems a two-night engagement in 2017 tops the list for many of you. In May of 2017, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers played their last Red Rocks shows before Petty's death that October. It was the band's 40th anniversary tour, which Petty described to Rolling Stone as their last big one. John Costigan told us he couldn't decide that summer between Petty and Guns N' Roses. Quote, I figured Petty would be back in Colorado again. Sadly, he passed away that fall. James Ford's regret runs even deeper. He missed a slew of chances to see Tom Petty, adding, kept thinking I'd catch the next one. Some say life will beat you down. You'll break your heart. Steal your crown. So I've started More of your Red Rocks FOMO tomorrow. I'm Ryan Warner with thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.